He said he was going to be tough on China, and guess what? If tough means talking tough, if tough means tariffs, if tough means even a slight tango with Taiwan, a lot of T's there, then Donald Trump is being tough. And if the goal overall is to fashion a coherent response to China's increasingly assertive stance in the world militarily and economically, well then how are all of these T's playing out? In response to the choices we're seeing coming from the administration, whether they represent continuity with the previous administration or disruption, is China actually coming around in a way that is conducive to U.S. interests? Well, we think in all of these questions we have the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two who are truly experts in this topic, who will argue for and against that resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here in Aspen, Colorado, will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. One more time, we're asking you to cast your vote if you haven't done so yet. Go to iq2us.org forward slash vote. You'll be prompted to vote for the resolution or against it or to tell us you're undecided. We're going to keep that open for a few more moments, a few more minutes, actually. And again, it's going to be the difference between this vote and the vote we register after that will determine our winner. Let's meet our debaters. First on the team arguing for the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Michael Pillsbury. Michael... um, Welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You debated with us before, back in 2007, our second season. You are the director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute. You're a distinguished defense policy advisor. You're a former high-ranking government official under Reagan and Bush, senior. And President Trump called you the leading authority on China. Uh-oh. Do you accept that uh, designation? <laughs> no. no. I'm too modest. Too modest. Okay, Mike, <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Pillsbury. And, Michael, your partner is Corey Shockey. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. Corey, this is your fifth time debating with us. We think that potentially is a record. So welcome to the Five Timers Club. Uh, You are Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Before that, you were at the Hoover Institution, and you were the Director for Defense Strategy and Requirements for the National Security Council under George W. Bush. Corey, it's so good to have you back here for time number five. Thank you. Thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Now let's meet the team arguing against this resolution. Please welcome back Graham Allison. Graham, as I say, welcome back because you've debated with us before and it's great to have you here again. Uh, You're a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. You directed its Belfer Center. You're uh, a leading analyst on national security and you worked under President Clinton and President Reagan. You also noticeably brought to prominence the phrase Thucydides trap. I'm sure that's going to come up tonight and not just from uh, from you uh, because it's become part of the currency of the conversation. Graham, thanks so much for joining us. And you have a partner as well, Jake Sullivan. Jake, you are the only first-timer on the stage. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Uh, So you also worked in public service. You were the national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, the director of policy planning at the State Department, and now you're a fellow at my alma mater, Dartmouth College, and a visiting professor lecturer at Yale Law. Jake, it's great to have you here. So here they are, ladies and gentlemen, our four debaters, ready to get started when Intelligence Squared U.S. continues. 
Now we continue. I meant to also mention that we're going to do little breaks like that, and I'll say things like, I'm John Donvan, and I'll be right back, but I won't actually leave. I will. <laughs> or if I do, it's going to be very strange. So uh, this is now coming back from the break. And so on to the debate. Let's start with round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. You can make your way to the lectern. Michael. Speaking first for the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Here is Michael Pillsbury, Director for Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Pillsbury. Thank you. It seems to me a good way to start would be to define with examples uh, what are productive policies toward China. My own bias is to look at things through the Chinese point of view, to have empathy with China, to be in meetings with government officials, including presidents, in which I say something like, this is how the Chinese see it. So from their point of view, what is productive, if we use our empathy to understand how they see what has been productive, you have to begin with the very first, most important, what the Chinese call the foundation of U.S.-China relations. And there was an incident during the Trump transition that I'll tell you about, that tested this foundation. It's usually known as our one China principle or our one China policy. It was worked out in great secrecy through a series of meetings with Henry Kissinger. It was in the second phase. There was even an earlier phase. And the idea, generally speaking, was to recognize Beijing as the only China and to turn Taiwan into a non-country. Now, you may not know what a non-country is. It means you cannot uh, visit the United States on on your own passport. If you're a military officer coming here to to train, you can't have on your military uh, insignia. There's a long list of things that were done to start the one China policy. The Chinese made it clear, if you don't do this, there'll be no relationship. You can have no embassy in Beijing, and we're not going to have an embassy in Washington. And we're prepared to wait. One of the quotes involved said 100 years till you come around. And Dr. Kissinger knew that Barry Goldwater would sue if he agreed to this. And that's, in fact, what happened. So there's a lot of issues we don't have time to get into that are all under the title of one China policy. Part of the deal is we would not transfer Taiwan to China. They're a non-country, but China cannot have them. They cannot claim sovereignty over them. And the Chinese vociferously said, we can never agree to that. So the compromise was, both sides would never mention it again. (laughs) And that's held since 1972, until the president of Taiwan, quote-unquote, remember, it's a non-country, So she's a non-president. She called up to congratulate Donald Trump. He took the call. It was on a list, it was on a call sheet of many, many other so-called heads of state assembled by some young staffers. He had a long chat with her, eight minutes. They put out a press release in Trump Tower. I just spoke for eight minutes with the president of Taiwan. You never can imagine the Chinese reaction. So to make up for that, the president said, I'd like to meet Xi Jinping one-on-one in Mar-a-Lago soon. The sooner, the better. 
So the second great productive policy was started. One-on-one meetings. Again, Kissinger pioneered this. Have a small staff, have one-on-one meetings, don't tell the rest of the U.S. government what you're doing. Have things conducted one-on-one and kept very secret. President Trump bought into that idea. Then at Mar-a-Lago in April of 2017, he, at the request of the Chinese, he terminated the entire U.S.-China framework that had been in place for 10 years. The framework was created by Hank Paulson. The basic idea was half of their cabinet ministers, half of our cabinet ministers would meet every year or so and do business that way. Cancel. From now on, two cabinet ministers would meet two others. They would channel all business through those uh, cabinet ministers. Much more effective, much quicker, very effective. For the Chinese to be told yes by Donald Trump, you can see that was productive. That's the way things have been running since 2017. Third thing, direct telephone conversations and meetings between Xi and Trump. Again, this was established by Nixon in the beginning, continued, I must say, by Jimmy Carter. Long meetings with Deng Xiaoping when he came to Washington. Extended by Ronald Reagan. But the idea was the rest of the government is not involved. It's a president-to-president dialogue about the most sensitive matters in the world. Covert action. Security cooperation. This became the fourth example, to me anyway, of productive policy toward China. The CIA was authorized to buy $2 billion, that's billion with a B, of American weapons, and transfer them into CIA covert action programs. The CIA and the Chinese worked together to expel the Vietnamese from Cambodia. You might have seen this in the James Bond movie. It was true. So security cooperation became the topic between the two presidents and their intelligence services. I think President Trump has continued this. However, something that I think very productive that you might not think of is the Obama administration, if you look carefully, in the last two years of the Obama administration, they began to change their views of China. I first saw it in his Tony Blinken speech, the Deputy Secretary of State, the return of great power competition. And before Trump arrived in the White House, I believe at least 10 of our great departments of government, state, treasury, commerce, defense, uh, certainly USTR staff, all began to realize our earlier policies toward China had not been Productive. Michael Pillsbury, I'm sorry your time is up, but you can continue your thoughts in the middle part of the conversation. I'd Thanks very much. Suspense up, maybe. <laughs> Thanks very much, Michael Pillsbury. Our next debater will be speaking against the resolution. He is Graham Allison, professor of government at Harvard. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Allison. So good afternoon, and uh, let me begin by thanking the organizers for hosting the discussion and say what a pleasure it is for Jake and me to participate with two distinguished colleagues from whom we've learned a lot over many, many years. Uh, For a debate about China, I know that the purpose is a debate, but this quartet on the stage is an odd quad. Since we agree about more than we disagree. So specifically, what do we agree about? First, that China is not just an issue on the foreign policy agenda, but the issue, 
the defining issue for as far as any I can see. Secondly, that the rivalry between a meteorically rising China and a ruling U.S. will test the presumption that most Americans now take for granted as if great power wars were obsolete. And third, and most importantly, that America's success or failure in mounting an effective response to this challenge will be decisive in shaping the future, not just for Americans, but for the global order. So what then do we disagree about? We disagree in one line about whether the Trump administration's policy is succeeding, not just in Michael's terms, in beginning to engage, but in fact in mounting an effective response to this reality. In the words of the resolution, whether the Trump administration policies towards China has been productive. So the key word here is productive. And to avoid a semantic debate, we went to the dictionary to clarify its meaning. According to Webster's, productive means producing beneficial results. So in this context, producing results that advance American interests. So ask yourself, has what the Trump administration has done in relations with China over the past two and a half years successfully advanced American interests? Or in terms that are more familiar uh, to most of us in our own lives, if a member of your family were sick and went to the doctor, is this doctor's prescribed treatment working? Since all the vital signs shout no, it's understandable that Mike and Corey will try to shift the focus of the debate. <laughs> As the debate manual counsels, when the facts support your case, pound the facts. When they don't, change the subject. Okay? <laughs> so in preparing for this debate, I actually, I read their writings in general, but I reviewed what they've written recently. Among China experts whom the Trump administration listens to, no one has been clearer in sounding an alarm about the dangers of recklessly emboldening Taiwan, as Michael was just mentioning, or acting in ways that lead the Chinese to conclude that we believe that they're our enemy, than Mike Pillsbury. As he said in a speech last week, and I quote, if Beijing perceives the U.S., perceives America is treating it like an enemy, it would fuel nationalistic fervor, and the response would be much harsher measures from China. And then he goes on to warn, down that road lies a certain risk of war. To whom is he issuing this warning? Among the four of us, Who's offered the most trenchant critique of the Trump administration's foreign policy, including their policies towards China? Read Corey Shockey's article in the current Foreign Affairs. <laughs> <clears throat> After giving Trump credit for, quote, poking holes in pieties and asking questions about longstanding principles, she concludes, and I quote, his answers to those questions have been self-defeating at best, and dangerous at worst. So self-defeating and dangerous. And on China specifically, she says, China's economic and military power has significantly expanded. 
So given what, they're, what they've written, my suspicion is if the organizers took a secret ballot here in the resolution before the four of us, at least three on the stage would vote no, and maybe even four. <laughs> so, to <laughs> so to conclude, let me identify five questions that all of us have to answer. And Graham, to make, you, you have one minute, just so you know. To make a serious assessment of whether the Trump administration's policies towards China are advancing American interests. Questions that Jake will say more about. First, security first. Is America safer than we were before the Trump administration began administering its treatment? Has the erosion of a military advantage in the Pacific slowed? Has the risk of a third-party action that drags us into a war we don't want been reduced? Are we stumbling into a new version of Cold War 2.0, as some members of the administration put it, without understanding how different the world is today than in 1950? Second, the long-term economic competition with China. Has, has the American balance sheet strengthened? Indeed, on what Trump's made the central issue, the bilateral trade balance, during the Trump administration, has the deficit shrunk? Third, on the geopolitical chessboard, have the ties between the U.S. and our allies and aligned countries that will be crucial in building a correlation of forces that China has to respond to strengthened or weakened? And there's two more questions which Jake will break up after. Let me just conclude. We wish dearly that the answer to, the answer, to, answer to these questions was yes. Because we care about the answers. They'll be decisive. But I think if you look at the facts, they're stubborn and they answer no. Thanks, Graham Allison. And a reminder of what's going on. We're halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have two teams of two fighting it out over this resolution. The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. You've heard the first two opening statements. And now on to the third. Arguing for the resolution, we have Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. So as Graham uh, pointed out, I am not the administration's strongest advocate, uh, but I do believe the policies, the approach they are taking to China needs to be taken, not in its specifics, which as Graham said, I'm quite critical of, um, but uh, the United States has had the right policy towards China for roughly the last 30 years. And it was best said by Robert Zellick, which is that what the United States is seeking to do is have China, a prosperous, powerful China, be a responsible stakeholder of the international order. That's what we wanted. That's what we want now. The problem is that over the last 30 years, quite a lot of data has accrued that that's not what China wants. So they are, Xi Jinping stood in the Rose Garden and publicly promised President Obama that they would not militarize the islands they were building in the South China Sea. They have militarized the islands they built in the South China Sea. They are behaving in a predatory way towards their neighbors, many of whom are American allies. They are not 
uh, honoring their promises not to hack American businesses. They are forcing Communist Party commissars onto the boards of American businesses that operate in China, thieving intellectual property from American businesses, uh, threatening American allies. What has changed in American policy, and I would argue it would have needed to change whether President Obama continued, uh, whether President Clinton had been elected, whether President Trump, was that China's behavior argues for a different and sharper-edged American approach. Um, And President Trump is right to take a different and sharper-edged approach. The second thing is that what does the United States need if we are actually uh, having to confront a rising China that's rapidly growing more prosperous and rapidly growing more aggressive? We need allies willing and capable to stand shoulder to shoulder with us. We have those kinds of relationships, but we have allies who over the last 30 years have allowed more and more of the responsibility for our common security to migrate to the United States. Right? The United States constitutes almost 80% of NATO defense spending. Uh, and the The South Korean military is strong and broad-shouldered and capable, and that is not how they view themselves. And they're not cooperating with Japan, our two closest allies in the region. And so while I would not advocate the needless antagonism of America's allies that President Trump has engaged in, the fact that allies are worried about whether the United States will honor our obligations to join in their defense has caused a strong uptick in activity by those allies in policy fronts, in defense spending fronts. So the government of Japan, for example, is cascading Coast Guard ships to the Philippines and to Vietnam to help those countries strengthen their ability to defend their fishing waters from the Chinese. The Australians have just announced a military training program that they're going to train Pacific Allies forces. You begin to see the middle powers of the international order take more responsibility for outcomes. I wish they weren't doing it because the United States was unreliable under President Trump. But in the long run, we can fix the reliability problem with a different president. The improvements and capability actually are a gain for the United States in managing a rising China. And the third thing that the president has chosen to do, which other American presidents have also chosen to do, I personally think it's a mistake, but... Um, As Mike pointed out, the Kissinger approach of not leaning on American values, not pressing um, our support for those brave young men and women in Hong Kong because they are, yeah, they deserve it from us. I agree. The United States government has made a choice that with a rising China growing so much more powerful so quickly, we need to prioritize making that relationship work. Because as uh, has been pointed out, we have a lot of work we have to do in cooperation with the Chinese on climate change, on many other issues. Um, So 
The president's approach is cost inefficient, and it pains me to see that he's not doing it in a way that where we can play team sports and work, build a common front with countries that share our concern about a rising China being brought into playing by the rules. But what the president is succeeding at is driving up the cost to China of not playing by the rules and resetting China's sense of how it needs to engage the international order. And that's actually a productive American policy. Thank you, Corey Shockey. One more time, the resolution is the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive, and here making his opening statement and our final debater doing so in the opening round, it will be speaking against Jake Sullivan, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. Ladies and gentlemen, Jake Sullivan. Thank you. So those are three tough acts to follow, and I'm an IQ squared rookie, so I'm hoping for some moral support from the audience over the course of the next six minutes. I'm not above it. I want to return to the resolution, as Graham laid out. The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. And basically what you heard from Corey over the last six minutes, well, it was, first of all, damning the Trump administration's policy with faint praise, for sure. But what you also heard was essentially a single argument. And that argument was, because Trump has gotten tough, it is, therefore, a productive policy. And what Graham and I are arguing is that is not good enough to win this debate, and that is not good enough to guide U.S. policy. Getting tough is not in itself productive. And that, that, by the way, is not some grand lesson of geopolitics. That's something that we tell our kids and our grandkids every single day. So what we have to look at is what productive actually means. It means, as Graham said, getting results that advance America's interests and values. And on this front, the Trump administration has failed time and again. And I want to talk about four areas where the administration's policy has not just been unproductive, but counterproductive. Now, in debate, normally you're supposed to only have three points. But unfortunately, the Trump administration didn't confine itself to three shortcomings, (laughs) so I'm stuck arguing for four. The first of these is that the single most important thing the United States could do to have a productive approach towards China is invest in ourselves, in our sources of national strength. And here, the Trump administration's record is severely lacking. No investment in infrastructure. Massive proposed cuts to our science and research budget. While the Chinese are racing ahead and have, in fact, surpassed us on research and development. We spend $1 for every three the Chinese spend on clean energy. And when it comes to investing in perhaps the greatest source of American strength, immigration, the United States is putting out a not welcome sign to the talent of the world and thereby squandering perhaps our greatest advantage over China. And as long as our immigration policy is broken, it's very hard to see how our approach towards China overall can be, can be considered productive. So we come to this competition with fewer tools and resources. The second area, which Corey mentioned, is that a productive approach to China leverages our friends, our allies, and American-led institutions and partnerships. Now, Corey argues, well, we're beating up on our allies, but that's good because now they're stepping up and doing more. Never mind the fact that actually the reason NATO is doing more is because 
of what happened with Russia and Crimea in 2015, and it started long before Trump. But to take an example, she offered Australia. She said Australia is now stepping up. As Corey herself wrote in The Atlantic a week ago, they are stepping up by excluding the United States and pursuing a strategy in the region that is pushing the United States out. The question for us is, why wouldn't we be rallying half to two-thirds of the world's economy, which is all of our like-minded friends and democratic partners around the world, to step up and challenge China on its trade abuses? Why are we going it alone? That, to me, seems like a fundamentally unproductive approach. So what has the Trump administration done instead of that? They pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was our effort to write the rules of the road in the Asia-Pacific. They declared our own allies and national security threat over steel, Canada. And they've come to the point now where in Germany, more Germans believe China is a trustworthy trading partner than the United States. How do you square that with arguing this approach has been productive? Even beyond that, though, when it comes down to it, The rules of the road on all of the important questions facing us today, from technology to trade to the future of the Internet, are going to be written, and they're going to be written in institutions the United States used to lead. We have walked away from those institutions, and guess who's filling the gap? China. So that leads me to the third issue, which is that we're not in some kind of battle to the death over ideology with China. Far from it. However... We are in something of a contest of models. China is presenting an alternative model to the world. And if more countries followed them, it would be adverse to American interests and values. So I ask you, in terms of the American approach to China, has the last 30 months made democracy as a model look better or worse? Has America presented a more or less appealing face to the world? A recent poll showed two things. Number one, that China's leadership is now more respected globally than America's, and number two, that for the first time in a long time, America is actually seen more unfavorably than favorably across the Asia-Pacific. This is at a moment when we're trashing our democratic friends and allies and embracing every dictator that we can find, giving more voice and more support to China along the way. And then finally, a productive U.S. approach to China necessarily, necessarily, has to balance competition and cooperation. We've completely thrown cooperation out the window in turning China into an enemy and pursuing a self-defeating struggle. And on the single most consequential issue facing not just the United States, but all of humanity, climate change, we have to work with the Chinese. And the Trump administration's approach on this has been the very opposite of productive, cutting off the channels of cooperation, indeed even denying it exists in the first place. So I will close with a simple proposition. A productive U.S. approach would not just be all anti-China all the time. It would be pro-us, pro-investing in us, in our values, in our allies, in our sources of strength. That would be a productive policy. That's what we should be pursuing instead. Thank you. Thank you, Jake Sullivan. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. 
Please keep in mind how you voted before the arguments began. You're going to be voting again at the end of the program. And again, I want to remind you, it's going to be the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winners. Now we move on to round two, where the resolution is the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. We have two debaters arguing for the resolution that the policy is productive, Michael Pillsbury and Corey Shockey. They talk first about the issue of process. They say that uh, that there's now, because of this style of, of President Trump, there's now actually a kind of president-to-president dialogue taking place, that there is a communications protocol in place that sets the grounds for engagement, creates the circumstances for better outcomes. So on the issue of just process, they're saying that the recent policy is productive and pr- promises to be more productive. But they also argue that if Trump is being tougher on China, that's because China has asked for it, that China is a predatory power. It's predatory in its trade practices. It's predatory geopolitically in its region. That China's re- policy and behaviors require a sharper-edged approach, and Donald Trump is delivering it. They also say that if it turns out that the president appears to be an unreliable ally, that there's a silver lining to that unreliability, that it's making our allies just a little bit jittery, and they're coming around to the program, and that might not be such a bad thing. The team arguing against the resolution, Graham Allison and Jake. Sullivan, they point out at the very beginning that all sides here agree that China is the issue of our time, and I think that that's true. All four panelists agree with that, but they say that productive means something else, that productive means producing results that can be very specifically enumerated, beginning with, is the U.S. safer? Is the U.S. trade balance stronger? And some that we didn't actually even get to hear. They played a very interesting tactical move by quoting some of their recent writings of their own opponents, which is also always a very effective debating tactic. (laughs) But I think we're going to hear their opponents battle back against that. Um, They also say that uh, um, what we're seeing in the world is a contest of models and that China and the U.S. are in a competition for the most attractive, best productive model and that democracy as a model because of the practices of Donald Trump and the recent administration is being corroded. So that's some of what divides these two sides. Um, There's a lot to dig into there. Normally, we start this portion by looking at the big picture disagreements between the two sides. But I want to do something a little bit different and just go to a specific example that is in the news and that we can all relate to. And that's the U.S. interest in having a denuclearized North Korea. And China has a critical role to play in that. So I want to put to Graham Allison first, is the recent U.S. policy towards China productive in bringing about any sort of move towards denuclearization of North Korea? That's a good question. The answer is uh, uh, no and yes, so it's complicated. Uh, uh, it's supposed to I, be no. I, <laughs> yeah, I, that's going to get very, very murky. I, 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 do not, I don't think that uh, everything that Trump has do, does is wrong just because he does it. I point out the people in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That sounds exactly like what Corey just said. Wait a second. A broken clock is correct twice a day. So the fact that somebody said something doesn't make it necessarily incorrect. If the, if the resolution before the House were the Trump administration's policy towards North Korea has been productive, but it's I would be, I'd be wiggling. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Trump administration policy towards China has made it more difficult, more difficult, to deal with the North Korean issue. So it's been essentially no. But the Trump administration has tried very hard, and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, who has his hand, has tried very hard, despite 
everything else that's being done to China to explain to them that because they have an interest in the denuclearization of North Korea, they should be cooperating with us. But they're cooperating less than they would if we were taking this as a joint problem. Okay, or that, joint problem. and that gets to the framework in which I was asking the question. Let me take Corey Shockey, your response to that. Uh, well, the, secret- the acting Secretary of Defense last spring, Pat Shanahan, I thought actually did a really useful thing to try and get the Chinese to be more cooperative on North Korea. He handed his Chinese counterpart a book full of pictures of Chinese ships violating the UN sanctions on North Korea. And using the tools of free societies to force the Chinese to play by the rules, I think is one of the best, most cost-effective strategies that we could be undertaking. And that's a good example how, as Graham says, like the president's so obstreperous that it's hard to ignore him. Um, But on China policy, help it. Every American administration has tried to get China to be more helpful than they are on North Korea. Frankly, I don't think the Chinese care. They think it's great that North Korea is absorbing so much of our time and effort and becoming a threat to us and our alliances in the region because that advances China's interests. It it detracts from us being able to focus on them. And so they're in favor of it. I think the way that the administration has appointed a special representative in the form of Steve Began, who's an excellent negotiator on these issues, that the Defense Department is pushing strongly for the Chinese to have to be accountable for what they are doing in breach of sanctions is also really helpful. So I don't think, I don't think it's as bad as it sounds. Jake Mar- Solomon, do you want to jump in? Sure. When I served in government, we would have meetings on North Korea in the Situation Room. And agenda item one was the experts coming in and making presentations, and everyone would start the same way. They'd say, North Korea is never giving up its nuclear arsenal, and China won't make them. And then agenda item number two was, how do we make China make North Korea give up their nuclear weapons? (laughs) I actually don't believe as a metric for whether our policy towards China is productive, North Korea is, is very effective. Because the fact is, as Corey was just saying, Democratic and Republican administrations, including the current one, have not been able to move the Chinese in a material way to produce okay. a real vision of denuclearization. Right. I think so, we should be looking at, at some right. of the so, other. I'm sorry, I brought it up. One, can I do one footnote? <laughs> <laughs> one footnote. Steve Began, whom Corey mentioned, is a member of the Aspen Strategy Group, which has often been. Just a shout-out for the local okay. team. <laughs> so, so let's take that off the table, because I think all four of you are saying, that, as you put it, it's not a good metric for talking about China's role. So let me go then, Jake. I have to interrupt you for a second. Uh, sure. The Chinese, after the Mar-a-Lago meeting, They agreed to two U.N. Security Council resolutions, fall of 2017, that were tougher than ever before in history. The North Koreans were astonished by this. So were a number of other countries. So we can't just imply that China is not helping. But but they also agreed to the two toughest U.N. resolutions in history in the Obama administration. And every time they will go a little bit further and a little bit further. And, you know, the same argument was made during the Obama eight years. Look what we got the Chinese to do at the U.N. At the end of the day, the net result is the same. By the way, my definition of recent U.S. policy includes the last two years of the Obama administration. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm glad you liked my question, Michael, but I'm, I'm going to pretend all of that didn't happen. And I'm going to I want to zoom back then to the issues that were laid out in your opening statements. And Jake Sullivan, I want you to take on Michael's argument that 
the president's establishment of a kind of president-to-president dialogue is, is in itself uh, a, a productive thing. Not only does it lay the groundwork for productive results, but it's productive in itself. Well, I would start by saying that no process is productive in itself. It is only productive insofar as it is actually generating results. And noticeably absent in Michael's presentation was the results of those conversations. Can I stop? But you I there? think can, can I, I stop you there? And, because d- you just put a challenge to d- you. You did not actually produce results. Is that a flaw in your argument? Yes, I did. There's quite a few. I didn't have six minutes. It's not very long. Okay, but can you list off- about twenty results that President Trump? Following Obama's beginning of all this, right. the last two years of the Obama What are some of them? Well, one of them has been Chinese agreed to come to the trade talks. Mm-hmm. I'm accusing you, let's say, of burglarizing my house and murdering my wife. Would you please start some trade negotiations with me? They, they did not uh, accept the charges against them. But they came to the talks okay. and they drafted 150 pages of detailed agreements that would provide okay. greatly increased so trade between you, you the U.S. You gave an example, but I've interrupted you mid yeah, so go, go Because up. I think this is actually also larger than just the lack of results. A president-to-president channel works only if the president is speaking for a unified policy on a given issue. And the problem with our approach to China policy is that there are about six or seven different China policies in this administration. So that president-to-president channel isn't all that useful. One day, Huawei is a threat to national security. The next, remind people what Huawei is. Uh, Huawei is a Chinese telecommunications company seeking to build infrastructure in other countries, including the United States. So one day, it's a national security threat. The next day, it's a bargaining chip at the, at the, table, at the uh, trade negotiating table. One day... Mike Pompeo was saying, we stand in solidarity with the protesters in Hong Kong. The next day, Donald Trump is saying, that's China's issue and we don't have anything to do with it. One day, the president is questioning the one China policy. The next day, they're pulling it back. So having this channel has not actually even inherently been productive, let alone the results that it's seeking to Corey produce. Corey Shockey, respond to that. Uh, I do think that the president's erratic behavior... Um, has caused the Chinese to wonder whether they are taking the right approach to the United States. Uh, Do you think it's calculated? No. Uh, (laughs) I think I'll stop there. (laughs) Graham Allison. I I agree completely with Corey that uh, the the Chinese government finds Trump mystifying, mystifying the way many Americans do. Uh, I've had conversations in Beijing with people who work directly for Xi Jinping, and they say, we have an extremely difficult time understanding who this person is and what he cares about. We have a conversation, and then there's a different conversation. We hear different noises from the administration. As we, One day, Pence gives a speech that declares Cold War 2.0. The next day, there's a phone call that says, we didn't really mean that. Then Pence sets up a speech that he's going to attack uh, Chinese for their activity in Hong Kong. Uh, all of a sudden... Uh, he's not giving that speech this week, maybe next week, maybe the week after. So I think there's a considerable amount of confusion the way there is, in fact, in all of the foreign governments trying to understand. But your opponents, what are, saying, is this your opponents are saying that that's kind of a good thing. Say what? Your opponents are saying that that's got a silver lining. Well, I think it, 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 if the purpose that 
was, as Corey said, to uh, poke some of the pieties and to raise some questions and to get people to think about more fundamental questions, maybe, maybe. But if it looks like you're dealing with an erratic party with whom you're not even sure you can reach an agreement, and if you do, the agreement is changed by tomorrow, in relations between great nations, that's extremely dangerous. I mean, if, if I go back to the Taiwan case, I think Michael has played a very constructive role, and I've talked to him about this for a long time, in trying to explain to the administration, in emboldening Taiwan to imagine that it can take stronger steps towards independence, they are running the risk of another... Uh, uh, assassination of an Archduke in Sarajevo that would produce a spark that could create a conflagration. It's extremely dangerous. And the idea that, well, we go this way one day, we go that way the next day, we keep them confused. There, if, well, actually, if it were producing results, I might even have some respect for it. But I think, first, it's not producing results. And second, I think it is as confused as it looks. What would be a result? What would be an ex- a, 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 a goal a, that... A, that... Re- a result would be, for example... Trade deal. That uh, in the South China Sea, the example that Corey mentioned, here Xi Jinping agreed that they were not militarizing the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Then they proceeded directly to say... The Trump administration has been dealing with them about the South China Sea. But when Corey mentioned that, I looked back here at what her organization, IISS, said about what's actually happening in the South China Sea. Well, you, I, and it says just here, between <laughs> 2016 right here, right? and 2018, the PLA, instead of intensifying its effort to fortify these, instead is intensifying its efforts to fortify these features by building infrastructures and a range of military structures. So basically it's gotten worse. All right, let me take that to Michael Pillsbury because you were, we just heard from you <laughs> through your opponent. Um, so you're, you, Michael, Michael okay. well, no, Michael, I, the, the larger point that I want to bring to you from Graham is that he's, he's talking about all kinds of stuff is not happening that should be happening that could be happening because of the uh, policy and position from the Trump administration that he's describing as erratic and confusing mm-hmm. to the Chinese. Can you respond to that? Sure. In, in terms of the South China Sea context. Well, a lot of Jake's and Graham's points I think are very good. They're very well taken. I admire uh, good ideas when I hear them. But there are a couple mistakes that they've made that I need to correct, and they're relevant to the South China Sea. And the mistakes are actually could be tragic if uh, Jake and Graham aren't more careful. When you say, and there's a letter by 100 scholars saying President Trump treats China as an enemy, and this is counterproductive, I searched through 200 documents, speeches of the Trump administration. The word enemy has never been used. In fact, you have the opposite. We had the applause for the Hong Kong demonstrations. Here's the president. He didn't say, students, demonstrate more. He sided with President Xi. So, but when the hawks in Beijing, who I write about so much in my book, when they hear Jake, or when they hear the hundred scholars say, oh, Trump treats China as an enemy, you know what they think? Well, maybe he must treat China as an enemy. This fuels the rage in China against the United States, and it's simply not true. But if the other thing is what Graham mentioned when he said, oh, Mike Pence made this speech, it was at our Hudson Institute, and he said this Cold War 2.0. Actually, Pence did not say that. 
No one's ever said it in the Trump administration. And there isn't any Cold War 2.0. But when the Chinese who criticize President Xi for being too soft, when they hear Graham, and there's been many others who've said this, again, it causes our own policy that dates back many decades to become far more difficult to enforce. The PLA now thinks, aha, the PLA now thinks it was able to fool President Obama. Just for, this is for a the layperson, tell us what the PLA stands for. PLA is the Chinese military. There's a group of what I call the hawks. They have their own yeah. name they call themselves, called Ying Pai. Ying Pai is the eagle. So they're the ones who have said in the South China Sea, we've got to close okay. it with military deployments. Let me, let me take your response to the— Which is quite dangerous. —to, to your, your opponents lay down a challenge that they don't think the Trump administration's policy is leading to a good outcome for the U.S. interests in the South China Sea. That was your opponent's response to it. Jake, what is your response to that response? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, if I said Trump said they were the enemy, I, your point is very well taken. I don't mean to imply Trump has ever said that. I don't believe he has. What I was saying was the approach of the administration has closed off the avenues to cooperation, including on critical issues like climate change, and widened the avenues for a kind of self-defeating competition that I think is deeply dangerous, Mm -hmm. and that you yourself have warned about in your Atlantic (laughs) speech, in in talking about a, a totality of steps that move us towards China becoming an enemy. But on the point this, this question of whether results have been produced in the South China Sea. Graham said it well. China has intensified its militarization of the South China Sea, not decreased it. It has increased the degree to which it is modernizing its military and closing the gap with the United States, not closing it. And part of the way that it's done that is because while we're investing in legacy systems like aircraft carriers, they're investing in asymmetric capabilities like missiles that can kill aircraft carriers. And for every $10,000 we spend on an aircraft carrier, they spend $1 on a missile that can destroy that aircraft carrier. That is the kind of counterproductive investment from a military perspective that is allowing China to close that gap and allowing them to keep flexing their muscles in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And it's another thing that I think is deserving of some correction as we go forward. Corey Shockey. So I agree that China is growing more aggressive, more dangerous, uh, more predatory towards uh, American interests and America's friends in the region. But that's not a function of Donald Trump being elected or Donald Trump's policies. It's a function of a rising China believing it deserves to have greater weight. It deserves to have in their minds a, a region of influence that we back away from. And they have been for 20 years building the military capabilities to do that. So it's not new. And the Trump administration is actually countering that pretty assertively. For example, yesterday was the day that the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty ceased to be um, operative between the U.S. and Russia. And a major reason for the U.S. not sustaining the treaty. First of all, the Russians had not been in compliance for years with the treaty. And those of people like me who 
who favor the agreement could never figure out a way to bring the Russians back into compliance. But the second reason, the driver for us withdrawing from the treaty now, was that we need to build the conventional range missiles of exactly the kind Josh, Jake was just advocating in order to counter China's threats to our allies in the region. Corey, let me bring in something that is arguably more a result of President Trump being elected. Tariffs. Yeah. Uh, tariffs. <laughs> are, are the tariffs that the president has been uh, slamming against China productive? So um, I do believe a policy that imposes enough costs on China that they begin to play by the rules of the international economic order rather than just taking the benefits of partial participation, partial opening of their markets, partial access for others. I, I think in the long run that could be useful. How long? But... But no, I mean, like, uh, the president not only can't do basic math, he doesn't understand that American consumers are paying the tariffs. People in the administration who favor the tariffs. That's for you. People in the administration who favor the tariffs, though. Um, make a decent point that us accepting near-term risk to reset the rules that China plays by is a near-term loss that brings us long-term gain. And I think okay, so you're that's saying, a testable I, proposition. Uh, so you're saying there's a rational reason for the tariffs, and uh, it, it, time, will tell, time will tell. You're not saying how much time necessarily. Very wise move, but I want to take that to your yeah. opponents. If you... If we're, if we're, when we're trying to make the case for tariffs being effective in producing results, I'll give you one for your side. The, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sanctioning Canada on national security grounds for steel imports has done more to lift the confidence of the Canadian Defense Forces than any action in history. They now stand like 10 feet tall. Canadians never thought they could be a national security threat to anybody. But now, <laughs> lo and behold, uh, the tariffs that the Trump administration has, has, uh, has enacted are basically promiscuous. We've been as vigorous in prosecuting with tariffs our, adver- our, our, our allies as our adversaries. And if the objective, as Jake said, were to get the Chinese to play by a set of rules, the TPP would have had 40% of the global economy negotiating with 18% of the global economy. That's China. Well, that's the correlation of forces in which you might get somebody to agree. In fact, if the TPP had been linked up with the Atlantic negotiation that was going on at the same time, so if this set of allies and a line were dealing with China, you've got 60% of the world's GDP. So the chances get larger. But in fact, the way the Trump administration has gone about it has lost that leverage. And the consequences, the results that we see. So I'd like to, I agree I, with that, but Corey, remember, you, he was can, not Cor- the only candidate who said they weren't, didn't support Hillary Clinton. TV. Nobody did. <laughs> I want to go to audience questions now, and the way that works, if you just raise your hand, uh, I'll call on you, and you stand up, and a microphone will be brought to you, sir. You'll go first. Um, I think you're wearing a blue shirt. Yep. If you could stand and tell us your name, but before you do that, there was one question from the opening arguments that I wanted to get to, and I would love it if somebody would bring it up, and that was Jake's point that China's beginning... We were talking very much about China-US, but there's also 
uh, an arena of other nations out there, and Jake was making the point that democracy as a model is beginning to lose to the Chinese authoritarian model in other parts of the world. There's an, another audience out there, and I'd like to explore that, but it's your time to ask questions, so if one of you is going to ask that question, just hold up a hand with two fingers like that, and I'm going to call on you. <laughs> I'm Jeff Volk. Uh, very simple. We talk about North Korea the largest proliferator of nuclear weapons, I believe, in that region is Pakistan. Has the Trump administration approach to China enhanced U.S. interests in Pakistan? Yes. As a matter of fact, you might uh, extend your question by uh, uh, asking, why does Pakistan have nuclear weapons? Okay. We're, it's China who gave them the design and China has never acknowledged this, but the whole world says so. So one of the areas where the U.S. and China can work together and have successfully, China no longer transfers nuclear weapons design to other countries. They're quite supportive in the nonproliferation effort. This is not something new with President Trump. But remember, I don't think we're here to have a 2020 Biden versus Trump debate. In Aspen, Biden will win 100 to 1. <laughs> This is a debate about China policy and the effectiveness of China policy. So in the area of nonproliferation, China and the U.S. have cooperated quite extensively. It's very impressive, I think. So let, me, let me agree with Mike on that point, because I think he put it... Can, in, I, can I, I ask this, Graham? On the agreement part, we don't have time. No, no, but, but <laughs> because... The I know, I'm, I'm you serious. Asked, no, you asked the question with respect to Pakistan and nuclear weapons. What his answer said correctly is, in order to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons, for decades, the U.S. and China have worked together mm -hmm. positively. Not always, mm -hmm. but positively. Therefore, that helps us understand that if we don't find a way to work together about things that really matter to the two of us, like proliferation or like climate, we go backwards in terms of the results okay. that we care about. You made that point really well. You just shouldn't have started it with saying, I agree with him, because you actually didn't agree with him. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, your policies. Okay. If you could stand up again, please. Thanks. I wonder if you can comment. Could, could you just tell us your name, sir? Yes, Stuart Tabin. I wonder if any of you could comment on whether you think the uh, tariff policy of the Trump administration has resulted in the reduced GDP growth rate in China currently, and whether you think the tariff policy will continue to cause a diminution in that growth rate. And also, is that a good thing? Is that a goal? It is a good thing, and it's been cut by about 0.5% according to a Barclays Bank study, which is online. It's a microeconomic study. The Chinese are very worried about this. Uh, President Trump has in some ways encouraged their worrying because he said six times now uh, on different TV shows that if Hillary Clinton had won, uh, China would be surpassing America now during her term and that this is not going to happen on my watch. When he says this to 70 or 80,000 people in an auditorium, there's no vote for Biden there. There's massive applause that's, that stopping China from surpassing America, what could be higher stakes than that? Jake. I guess I'd make two points. One is that going from 6.7 GDP growth this year, last year, to 6.2% China GDP, GDP growth this year, if that's your measure of productive policy, we are going to lose over the long term. Because at the end of the day, while we are imposing these tariffs and, and American farmers and consumers are paying all the costs while China lowers its tariffs for everyone else, 
we are focused on steel, soy, coal. China's focused on quantum computing, AI, biotechnology. They're not thinking about their growth rate in the next quarter. They're thinking about their growth rate in the next quarter century. And for me, a tariff policy that goes down this, this road is not ultimately going to generate a positive outcome for the United States. And I would finally say that it's all fine and good to think about how to slow China down. But I believe that the most unproductive policy of this administration has been to not make the investments that would make America run faster and win the economic competition. Corey, do you want to crack at that question? Uh, I would just maybe add one point, which is I don't think the 0.5% diminution of growth is a is a big problem for the Chinese economy. But if the uncertainty associated with tariffs as a bludgeon and with economics as a major tool of statecraft continue, you are going to see the divergence of supply chains. And that will be an enormous problem for China and its continued growth. I agree with Jake, though, that we should actually want a prosperous China. We should just want a prosperous China that plays by the rules. Hmm. That's what President Trump says, by the way. Sorry, Graham. It's the exact uh, quote. Just, uh, Prosperous China uh, that plays by the rules. So just two facts. Uh, so fact one, uh, the deficit, the, the trade uh, defi- de- deficit, the bilateral trade deficit with China has grown or has shrunk under Trump? It's grown by 18 percent. So it's, it's successfully expanding the the, the, the deficit. Secondly, with respect to the growth that Trump likes to talk about, the China is overtaking the U.S. I study this very carefully. The Chinese in the period since Trump became president have closed the gap between how tall we are and how tall they are by 14 percent. So they're continuing to grow at 6.2 percent. We go at 3 percent. All of us can do the math. Look and see how that, that uh, uh, so it has not stopped and it's not going to be prevented. President Trump likes that line and it sounds good for Americans, but it's not true. The hard fact, I mean, we just do the arithmetic. There's four times as many Chinese as there are Americans. If they're only half as productive as we are, they work hard, they're pretty smart, they would have a GDP twice our size. So that's in the cards if you look at it as a big picture. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be the smartest. If we do a good job of recruiting talent from all over the world, as we've done, then we can be the smartest. If you look and see who runs and who's built the high-tech firms that have been the source of American greatness over the past uh, generation, these are people equal that were time, not born in the West. Yeah. Yeah. This is filibustering. <laughs> I just gave you two numbers. I'm going to move on to another question. The World Bank publishes something called Purchase Power Parity, in which China surpassed us three years ago as the largest economy in the world. The CIA publishes the same numbers and with the same results. I'm going to to move on to a question. It's a way to measure who's ahead. Can we have a mic down the front, Ryan? If you could stand up and tell us your name. Uh, Hi, I wanted to ask a question. Can you tell us your name, please? Uh, My name is Kevin. Uh, And my name is Kevin McNulty. And I had a question, which is that uh, it makes sense that a lot of the analysis that we're running through is more macroeconomic in nature because that's a lot of what is actually happening. Um, but I was curious about whether you think a material part of your uh, assessment of this is the tail risk of an actual conflict, whether proxy or direct. And if so, how do you size that and price that? And how does that 
um, factory indecision. Great question. Uh, about a chaotic. Thanks. Great uh, question. Um, let me go, have that go first to Corey. Or, or Michael, I, I, I'll toss it up between the two of you. Uh, be brief, just to be brief. I was simulated a lot by Graham Allison's book on this exact topic. I don't know if you've read his book. It's called Destined for War. He addresses in great detail the results of the Harvard study project about how war could break out between the U.S. and China and how the, how the, what the case is that it may well happen. In the beginning, he sort of says, well, the chances are low. But by the time I got to the end of the book, I was pretty scared. So that's the, that's the answer to your question. Read Graham Allison's book, Destined for War. Corey, Very did scary. you want to jump in on that too? Uh, so uh, there aren't that many. There's only one case of a peaceful transition between great powers, between a rising power and a dominant rule-giving power. And that's Britain to the United States in the 19th century. And the reason that transition happened peacefully is because the two societies were similar enough and you had civil society links and that created the space for governments to make compromises in crises. And there aren't those kind of linkages. There aren't those similarities of values between this Chinese government and the United States. Um, there may be, I think, there are very likely to be between the people of China and the United States, and we should be fostering those because that will be so, stabilizing so and reducing that, that tail risk you're worried about. Tie that to the resolution that the president's policy, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Um, does... Does the situation you're describing support your position in the resolution or hurt you? Well, um, my sense is that we should be pressing harder on the values issues. Many American governments choose not to. Uh, but my favorite... By the values issues, you mean human rights? and I mean human rights. I mean civil liberties. Mm -hmm. I mean individual dignity, representative government. Mm -hmm. um, which, the, which the president is not doing which the president is not doing, and many other American presidents have chosen not to do in order to preserve the relationship with the leadership. But the best expense of your tax dollars on China policy in the last 15 years has been the Obama administration's ambassador in Beijing uh, putting the air quality index on the American embassy website because for almost no money, it forced the Chinese government into accountability on something its public cared about that the government didn't. And you can see the increasing attention that the Chinese government pays to climate change issues as a result of that. Graham Allison, to, br to, bring, to bring the conversation back to what the question was about, the potential for uh, military conflict between our two nations in your opening statement, you asked, you know, is the U.S. safer? Is that goal being achieved? So can you address the audience member's question in the context of that framing that you put in the opening? Well, th thank you, and thank to Michael for a shout-out for destined for war. So, the, And by the way, Corey wrote a book about why Britain and the U.S., and that book is called? Safe Passages, and it's a great book that tells about the story that she just mentioned. And, and there's a and book Michael, there. Michael has his book on the... And, uh, the <laughs> and, 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 and I have not written a book, so... <laughs> it, in my book, I cite Michael's book. So uh, there, there's more agreement here than you might suspect, but to, to your point. So in rivalries historically between a rapidly rising power and a ruling power, you get what Thucydides uh, taught us about, a Thucydidean dynamic. 
And there's uh, the rising power, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I deserve more say and more sway. The current arrangements were put in place before I got here, so things need to change. I'm a disruptive upstart. And the ruling power thinks, what the hell's going on here? We're used to prerogatives and positions that we've become accustomed to, and you're trying to change things. And actually not just change things, the way that they are has been a great international order. It's allowed you to grow up. So why don't you be grateful and become a responsible stakeholder and take your place at our table? That's normal. The way wars often happen is some third party's action, a provocation, or even just an accident occurs. Mm -hmm. And one or the other of the competitors feels obliged to respond, and they get into a spiral, at the end of which they get dragged into a war that nobody wanted. In my book, I have a good chapter on World War I, but you can't study it too often. And in the China case, if you think about Taiwan, if Taiwan makes a move towards independence like it made in 1996, we're going to have a very, very dangerous situation. In 1996, I was in the Pentagon. Taiwan made a small move towards independence. President Clinton decided to send two carriers into the area, force China to back down, drove the PLA crazy. Mm -hmm. From that day to this, they've been building up a military capability to prevent that ever happening again. It's a very important point you're making. And the missiles that they've deployed that they call carrier killers have forced our carriers out of that. If I was at the Pentagon today and the same scenario happened, I would not recommend bringing up the carriers. So now you're going to have a situation in which China will either coerce Taiwan, if that were to happen, 96 over again, or the U.S. comes to their rescue. And, and, and Graham, I, do, I just want you to relate this to the resolution about the recent U.S. policy towards China, making it the situation more or less dangerous. The, the U.S. policy, the, and this, again, I'll just say something nice about Mike. Mike has been one of the resistors to this, but the U.S. policy has been emboldening Taiwan to feel more able to take these moves. The president of Taiwan, for the first time ever, came and spent four days in the U.S., uh, I don't know, last week or the week Mm -hmm. before. Never before was a Taiwanese president allowed to spend any time here. The national security advisor goes and visits the national security advisor. We just made a big arms sales to Taiwan. So in Taiwan, where an election is going on right now, one or two of the candidates are thinking about appealing to the population by, we could be more independent. We don't want to be dominated by, by Beijing. I understand that sentiment very well, but if the if, if acting on the basis of that dragged the U.S. and China into a war, that would be catastrophic for everybody. And it okay. seemed completely and crazy, I, but it was crazy what happened in 1914. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. The recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. I feel like we didn't quite exhaust... Uh, the energy on that question, um, because Jake, you looked like you wanted to say something, and Corey, you haven't had a shot. Do you, do you want a shot? Because we can go on to another no, question. No, I'll take another question. Okay. I, I mean, I would just put a very fine point on it. When it comes to the issue of Taiwan, 30 months later, it is more likely that the United States gets dragged into a war over that issue than it was 30 months ago, and that fundamentally is not productive. Okay. Anybody want to ask the question that I was asking somebody to ask? That's the one, that's the one I want to answer. That's the one I want to have asked. If you want to stick on causes of war, there's another big one in the South China Sea 
And I, I very much admire what President Obama did. Well, let, Michael, hold off on that because I want to I move on to a different topic if we can. If an audience Causes of war with China, pretty big topic. <laughs> I, I agree, but... Um, Jane Harmon's in the front. Yeah, right Jane Harmon. Yeah, Hi, I'm Jane Harmon. Great debate. Really applaud you all. Uh, a topic that Jake raised that no one has come back to is immigration. And there were applause for that. I, you know, I, I personally think Trump's immigration policies are flawed. But I want to ask about Chinese students studying in the United States. I think there are 350,000 of them. They pay full freight, so universities love it. My view is that they become ambassadors for the United States when they go home. And my question is, are Trump's policies on immigration uh, and students uh, productive? What a good question. Okay, who would like to take that? I'll take that one. Of course. Um, The short answer is no. Um, But there is a legitimate concern about... Chinese students and Chinese scholars getting intellectual capital that gets fed into China's military program in a way that if you think there's a risk of war with China and we're actually going to have to fight the Chinese military, that they're not wrong to be anxious about that. But as with so many other things, instead of having a precise policy that solves the specific problem, they're big and sloppy and it's damaging. Um, But the great good thing, the saving grace of our sweet provincial country is that the federal government isn't actually mostly what people know about us or even have the ability to take action on a whole bunch of things. My favorite example of which is that despite withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords Agreement, despite the overt hostility of the federal government, despite many states rolling back regulatory regimes, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, announced about three months that the first country that is going to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals is the United States of America because states actions, civil society groups, self-interested business decisions, my mom wanting the place to be habitable for her great-grandchildren, all of those things work and on immigration, that's what's saving us. That people still want to come to American universities, they still think if I become an American, my kid can grow up and run the country and they don't think that in Beijing. So we still do have a dynamic on immigration. Jake, it's far as yours. I think the broader Trump immigration policy lands squarely at the feet of the president, and it is putting a not welcome here sign out to so much talent from so many parts of the world, and that comes at great moral and strategic cost to the United States. But I think on the specific question of Chinese students, there's actually some blame to go around. I think too many Democrats in Washington have joined with Republicans in going overboard on pushing these legitimate national security concerns into territory that says, if you're coming from China, you must necessarily just be a tool of the PLA. And I don't think that's right. In part, I don't think that's right because most of the work done at universities is open source. It's published for everyone to see. So most of the work that these Chinese students are doing is not some secret thing that they get access to because they paid tuition at at Dartmouth College or anywhere else. They could get it anywhere. So what we are losing in the talent and ingenuity of those students, and by the way, 
Half of the billion dollar startups in this country were founded by immigrants. Many of the great innovations in all of the areas where we need to stay ahead or get ahead of China are coming from immigrants, including Chinese nationals who come here, many of whom stay. So this is a bipartisan problem, and we have got to get the balance better than we have right now because we're moving into a territory, I fear, of a new red scare. And I think that is fundamentally unproductive for the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. Since, um, since no one seems to want to be the vessel of the question that I want asked, I, I do want to put it out there. It was a major part of Jake's opening statement to make the argument that one of the harms he feels is being caused by the present policy out of the White House in regard to China is that China is already had been, but is gaining even more ground as an attractive model to various other states around the world as an authoritarian model, one that uh, engages and encourages surveillance of its population, uh, etc., lack of human rights, and that the that this is at the expense of the model that the U.S. Uh, has promulgated since the Second World War, from which it has benefited, and that I think many would agree the world has benefited, and that that's a bad thing. Corey Shockey, do you want to take that on? Sure. Uh, I, while the disgraceful spectacle of American politics right now is certainly not advancing brand America in the world. Um, it's, it's also not wholly bad um, because the, the, the open discourse we have as a society, the way that people care desperately about solving these problems or arguing about these problems, that too is an example. And it's not terrible, um, even though it's sometimes distasteful. The two real things uh, that as much or it seems to me possibly more than President Trump's behavior that have made authoritarian capitalism as the Chinese practice and export it. What the Chinese say is that America's mistakes uh, after the September 11th attacks, in particular the war in Iraq and the 2008 financial crisis, show that the, the American model is just too difficult to handle, right? The, the vacillations of fortune are too much. The predictability of the Chinese model is what you should trust. And that does have some appeal. But we are living through the great test of Hegel's philosophy that as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. And while uh, the Chinese government is trying to stamp out that notion, it looks to me actually like the Chinese people still get it. And if the Chinese government genuinely didn't think Hegel was right, they wouldn't have to build a surveillance state to control their own population. But they do. Jake, do you have a response to that? I guess just to elaborate a little bit on what I was laying out in my opening is that we need to be able to make the case to countries around the world that a democratic free market system can deliver for them and that there is an appealing kind of quality, a moral authority to that system that is superior to this fusion of authoritarianism and technology that China is selling. And I just don't believe that if you look at the record of the last 30 months, you could argue that our appeal, our moral authority, our capacity to make that case to people around the world has gotten better rather than worse. And for me, when it comes to the approach of the U.S. towards China, that is a huge own goal, a huge own goal. It's not all about Trump. I'm not arguing this is all about Trump. But I think that the current approach, his approach in particular of dividing this country and of undermining a lot of the fundamental things that we stand for, 
has perhaps provided the lion's share of the reason for why people in Beijing right now are thinking, hey, this ain't so bad. They're tarnishing their model all on their own. Michael, that to me is a big problem. Last word to you, Michael. Uh, I just want to agree with Jake. Um, as a matter of fact, the Chinese, I have a chapter in 100-Year Marathon. Shamelessly hold it up. I have a chapter about how they've got a $12 billion budget for soft power activities around the world. Their own international network of TV stations. Radio stations are buying in Texas that upset Senator Ted Cruz. It's a massive onslaught. Part of it starts in Beijing where they demonize America. Not Trump, they demonize America. It's gotten quite bad in the last two weeks. And today there's a Jane Perlez story in the New York Times that cites some of the really nastiness, nasty comments in the last two weeks that have come out of China. We don't really have a response for this. And the organization that used to do this for us, United States Information Agency in charge of public diplomacy, shut down by Jesse Helms, frankly, and others as a Cold War agency. Well, if we think about the challenge of China, it seems to me if you look back in 1947, the challenge of the Soviet Union, we created the Joint Chiefs of Staff by law, created the CIA, created the National Security Council, gave some metrics for how to measure how we're doing. We've done nothing in terms of our government organization about dealing with China. Debaters, that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. These statements will be two minutes each. Two minutes. Um, And speaking first... To make his closing statement, Michael, you can make your way to that lectern. Oh, yep, you stand for this one. Making his closing statement in support of the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive, Michael Pillsbury, Director for Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute. Thank you. Let me begin with my description or my definition of recent U.S. policy. I repeated several times, Barack Obama started going down the right path toward a tougher line toward China. I didn't get a chance to mention something he did in the South China Sea. He began to send U.S. Navy warships through excessive Chinese territorial claims. And in one case, his team knew that if you do acts of war inside the territorial zone, the other side could get quite excited. But President Obama had the courage to do it anyway. In September 2016, he sent a U.S. Navy destroyer that zigzagged its way through a Chinese island claim. This is the beginning of showing that China is not going to get away with it in the South China Sea. A United Nations-related body ruled against China's claims. This gets back to the liberal world order that somehow... The Chinese government has got to be dissuaded from these policies. So Obama started it. Trump has continued it. It's not nearly enough. We seem to all agree. And I would just try to close and get your vote by saying, how much are we going to have to do to bring China around to what we all thought China was going to be 30 years ago? Free market, some kind of democracy, pro-American somehow, and and appreciation and gratitude for all we've done to build up China. 
That's, that's the question of our debate. And Corey and I think we're on the right track now. Apparently, Graham and Jake are just negative-minded guys who can't see anything positive. Thank you. Michael Pillsbury, the resolution. Again, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive and here to make his closing statement against the resolution. Graham Allison, professor of government at Harvard. So to John's uh, pain, there's been more agreement than disagreement. But with respect to the bottom line, I think if these constitute results that are good for the U.S., advancing our interests, then I would vote for the resolution. But I simply think the facts don't uh, speak to that. And let me go very quickly. Uh, The economic competition. President Trump has added an additional $2 trillion to the American debt, imposed tariffs on virtually everybody, uh, interrupted supply chains, as Corey said, in ways that uh, make people worry about the reliability of U.S. As a, as a supplier or as a market. So that certainly is weakening our balance sheet in the long-term competition. On the security front, as the chairman of the JCS said recently, he he's not wrong. China's erosion of U.S. military advantage continues, just on the same pace. And in stumbling towards a Cold War 2.0, which is the way at least some members of the administration uh, talk about Vice President Pence's speech, we're basically missing the necessity to cooperate with China in areas like nonproliferation that Michael mentioned, where cooperation is essential. By attacking our allies with as much enthusiasm as when we're attacking our adversaries and communicating such unambiguous disrespect for the leaders of other countries that we've got to assemble if we're going to have a coalition of allies and aligned to create this advantageous correlation of forces for dealing with the Chinese, we're basically going backwards. That's not enhancing our strength, but weakening it. As Jake said, the American brand has fallen faster under this administration than ever before in the history of polls. The Pew poll finds 70% of the the international community now expresses no confidence in the Trump's global leadership. And as Gallup found for the first time ever, more of the world supports China than America's leadership in Asia, which seems to be just incredible. So to return to the resolution, I can't help but think of a medical analogy from America's first president. George Washington was sick. He had a fever, called the doctors. They came to the Mount Vernon. They put leeches on him. It got better for a couple of days, and then he died. (laughs) Thank you. Graham Allison. The resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive here, making her closing in support of the motion. Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. So Jake Sullivan raised a really important challenge, which is why aren't countries rallying to our side to to uh, contest China's breaking of the rules as it rises. And he asserted that President Trump's reckless disregard for our allies and general rudeness and cost-imposing strategies on our allies was the sole reason for that. Um, And I'm sympathetic to the argument that the president is needlessly antagonizing our friends. But that's not the only reason countries aren't rallying to our side. And in particular, it's not the reason that the countries 
closest to China geographically and most imposed on by China in security, the ones who have the most to lose if China is able to reset the rules of the international order such that power determines outcomes. Um, the reason that those countries are not rallying to our side is they currently have the very advantageous circumstance that they do the majority of their business with China, enriching themselves and enriching China, and they have security guarantees from the United States that if China gets out of line, that we will protect them. The Prime Minister of Singapore in May scolded the American Defense Secretary that you shouldn't make us choose between our security and our prosperity. And that would be a beautiful world if they didn't have to choose. But if China continues to chip away, uh, if it continues to uh, raid the waters of the Philippines, to sail military forces through and harass Philippine Coast Guard ships, the Philippines are not going to like the international order that results from that. And so countries, it's the free rider problem. Countries want the ability to have us solve their problems. And that's also why they're not rallying. And I wish the president found more constructive ways to engage that. But you do begin to see countries in the region take more responsibility for their outcomes. And ultimately, that will be good for us because when a, a more dignified and, and polite president, one who plays team sports, uh, gets elected, you can rebuild that sense of sameness, but you will have additional capability. The rules of the order really matter, my friends. Korshaki, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. And here to make his closing statement against the resolution, Jake Sullivan, former national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. You know, when your argument that the policy is productive is contingent on electing another president to change the policy, it does raise a real question about how productive you are. Now, if I were on, if I had been assigned to the other side of this debate and the resolution was the current U.S. approach towards China is productive, I think I would have asked John, because it just says productive, it doesn't say productive for whom, if I could have argued that it's productive for China. Because I think I could have won that resolution hands down. And that, I think, is the core challenge with the argument coming from the other side. If you think about what China has tried to achieve over the past many years, undermine U.S. alliances. The Trump policy has helped them with that. Reduce American influence in international institutions and increase their own. The Trump policy has helped them with that. Reduce the innovation edge of the United States. Trump putting a budget forward to the Congress that slashes research and development while China races ahead has helped them with that. Undermine the appeal of democracy and enhance the appeal of authoritarian capitalism. The Trump strategy has been productive for China in that respect. And then, of course, on perhaps the most fundamental question, our ultimate trump card against China, the ability to have a demographic dividend from immigration that they have never been able to have. Squander that, and the ball game is going to be over long before it ever really starts. And if all of that is not enough, we have closed off the avenues for cooperation on the single most consequential issue facing our country today, climate change. Graham and I only had to prove that this set of policies was not productive. 
I believe we have demonstrated, in fact, that this set of policies was counterproductive. So we have actually gone above and beyond what we were asked to do in this resolution. And as a result, I'd ask those of you who voted for us to stick with us, those of you who weren't with us in the beginning to join us in opposing this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Jake Sullivan. And that concludes the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And I know that the suspense has been building to see what the outcome was going to be, who you would find would be the most persuasive. And I am here to tell you that the suspense is going to continue because for the first time, our voting system has failed. <laughs> so we won. Congratulations. And we won. Well, we won. what we're going to do, what, what, we're, what we're going to do, there we is a solution. The system. A solution has been worked out. We are going to hand out paper ballots. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wait, wait. I just got in my ear. The voting system is up again. <laughs> So, uh, to resume what I would normally say, are, are, are we up? Are we good? Yeah? Yeah? We're good. So, what I would normally be saying is, now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. So, I'm going to say, now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. I want to ask you again to go to your phones, to your mobile devices, and return to that same URL, and you will have the chance to vote a second time to tell us which team you have found the most persuasive during the course of this argument. I really was looking forward to the paper ballot thing, but uh, is everybody good? Um, is it up? Is it working? No? Some, some are saying yes and some are saying... Those who are saying no, try again, because there are a number of yeses. In the third row, are you good? You, is it work? No? Who's got a No. Pre-debate. Do we have a... <laughs> all right, is everybody done now? It's worked or not? Okay, all right, here's what I want to say. I, I, I say this at the end of every debate. Our, our founder who's here tonight, Robert Rosencrantz, you heard him come on stage. Um, he set this thing up in 2006 in order to foster the kind of exchange that is exactly what took place on stage tonight, where four people who, who actually fundamentally made clear that they agree on some very core values, nevertheless see disagreements in implementation and at the margins, and that they were willing to come on stage and, and clash about that in a, in a way that required thought and, 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 and just persistence of argument and critical thinking, but to do so in a way that was civil and friendly and the end of which they can actually shake hands. The four of you did that in such magnificent fashion. I just want to thank you. Um, in addition to the, to the voting system almost failing, that would have been a first. The misfired first question, that was also a first. So I'm sorry for that. I'm sure Robert will have a word with me about that afterwards. Um, but you, you and all of us recovered from that. In it, also on the notion of, of advancing the ability of people to talk to each other civilly, uh, is Ryan Everts here? Hi. Uh, we've never met before. There's a gentleman in the front row who wrote me an email about five years ago. And he said... Um, he said, you know, um, I'm going out with this woman for quite a while, and we have some political differences. And the way that we've been working out our political differences is that we've been listening to the podcasts of your debates. And we, <laughs> and we hear the debates, and we talk things through, and it's really getting around to the point where I think I could potentially spend the rest of my life with her. <laughs> well, don't give it away. Do not give it away. Well, now it's given away. 
So he said, could you please record for me in front of the audience in New York a, a mock announcement of a resolution? So, you know, before when I said yes or no to this statement, I did a resolution, something along the lines of yes or no to this statement. Nicole should say yes when Ryan proposes. And I, I recorded that in front of the New York audience. They all applauded. We sent it to him. As I understand, you put it in a a CD or something, popped it in the car. She didn't know it was going to come up. She thought it was an IQ2 debate, and suddenly I'm announcing that she should. So, so you're here. Can you stand up? So, can you, can you just tell me what happened? Yeah, of course. I said yes. You said yes, okay. <laughs> And, uh, and, and are you married and it's all we're done? getting married in September in Mexico. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Everybody here is invited, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's really a clear example that this thing that Bob set out to do uh, can, can, can work at all sorts of levels. Um, so uh, I want to thank you for that and for showing up. It's a pleasure to meet you. And um, I'm, uh, I, I'm, at this point, I'm looking for a face of our producer, but she's disappeared. I think maybe is backstage working on things. So I w- want to talk with you while we're waiting for the results of the vote, which I think, uh, as I understand, are f- it's still functioning and being calculated now. Um, um, I wanted to ask the four of you a question. Um, we, we, we've been talking about China, and sometimes we like to go to outside of the, the topic that we're debating once the competition is over, since we have four smart people on the stage to talk about something else. Just a chat, it's not competitive at all. Um, but since we've been talking about China as the issue, you all agreed to that and stipulated it in the beginning. What do you see as the, what, be, besides China, what, what, other is, what other national security threats do you consider, say, number two? Corey, why don't you go first? Yep. Uh, I would say the national debt is number two. And I agree with a lot of Jake's <laughs> argument that if we strengthen the core um, the core principles that made our free society successful in the first place, that we actually won't have to worry very much about a rising China. Because if we do what we do well right, we'll be fine. Okay, thank you. Jake, do you want to take a crack at that question? Well, I agree with Corey on the general direction, though I don't think it's the debt. I, I think it is making sure that our system actually can deliver for everybody. And um, sort of whether you're on the right or you're, you're on the left, whether you're a Trump supporter or a Democrat, it seems to me that there are some fundamental adjustments that need to happen in our economy. And they relate not just to our tax system and to competition policy and so forth, but also to this fundamental question of what is going to happen with the fourth industrial revolution. And this has economic consequences, it has political consequences, it has social consequences, both in the United States and around the world. One thing that we didn't really get into in this discussion is the whole question of what happens when gene editing gets to a point where we're faced with genuine ethical dilemmas, and the U.S. and China may have very different views on those. Or for that matter, facial recognition, or virtual reality, or artificial intelligence. And I think solving that set of questions for me is so profound, and it cuts across basically every other foreign policy and national security issue that we face. Thank you. Michael, you want to take a crack at that? A related issue, which is hard to... It takes a new vocabulary to describe it. But we've taken for granted 
for a long time, the idea of a liberal world order goes back to League of Nations, even goes back to the Westphalia settlement in 1648. It's gotten very detailed in terms of specialized agencies. There's just a huge structure. Uh, My first job was in the United Nations Secretariat, actually. And I saw this whole structure going on forever. I didn't understand technological surveillance capacities, the desire of China to first penetrate and then turn the structure to its own interests, and then other authoritarian regimes doing the same thing. So I don't have a, a, a good bumper sticker for this problem, but it's the erosion of the liberal world order for taking it for granted and for the failure to find some way to counter this technology that is making uh, cradle-to-grave surveillance every day so that if you do something your government doesn't like, you can't buy a plane ticket, you can't buy a train ticket. Mm. All kinds of sanctions get put on you. And all this was unthinkable back in 1945. Okay, Grant? I I think all, all of the issues that have been mentioned are big ones. In the conclusion of my book, I imagined uh, uh, something I use in my classroom sometimes, that a Martian strategist who's watching what's going on on the globe comes down, and I imagine she comes down to Mari Lago, and there's Trump and she's sitting there, and she says, I just have a couple of points to make. He says, first, each of you have problems that you're probably going to be unable to overcome. Secondly, most of those problems are inside your own border. You've got problems between you, but you have even bigger problems inside your own border. You, she, you're trying to, have, have an, a, a, to revive an authoritarian, uh, basically Leninist, Mandarin uh, state that Lee Kuan Yew told you is trying to take a 20th century operating system and patch on 21st century apps. It's not going to work. And you, Trump, are trying to run a dysfunctional democracy. D.C. now stands for dysfunctional capital. (laughs) It's not working. And if you can't reinvent a way for your society to govern itself as a democracy, the rest of the story is going to follow pretty directly. All so right. each have Thank you, all of you. Okay, it's, it's time to end the suspense. I, I now have the final results. Again, the resolution, the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. On the first vote from the audience here in Aspen, 26% of you agreed with this resolution. 51% disagreed. 23% were undecided. Those are the first results. Again, I want to remind you it's the difference between the first results and the second vote that I'm about to announce that determines our winner. On the second vote, the resolution, recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. The first vote, 26%. The second vote for the four side was 15%. They lost 11 percentage points. For the other side, the side arguing against, their first vote was 51%. Their second vote, 83%. They pulled up 32 percentage points. That makes the team arguing against the resolution, our winners, against the resolution that the recent U.S. policy towards China is productive. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Thank you.